can grab your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 7. Just get a good look at everybody who's here. Just make sure I understand what's going on. You are the late ones, right? You missed signing up for the, uh, the 1130 service. I, I know, I know. I, registration came and uh, record timing. Second service, completely sold at 250 spots, overflow and everything in 35 minutes. You are the late ones. Congratulations. But you made it. This is the good news. You're here. And we're really thankful. Um, and it begs this question. I wanted to kind of start with this question. Um, is the alarm clock good or bad? Yeah, many this morning. This morning it was particularly bad, right? It was bad. But it was good, wasn't it? Because it got you here. Uh, you woke up, you're here, and I think, I think you're awake. Um, kids, let me ask you a question. Uh, broccoli, good or bad? Good? All right. That was an adult, I think. Uh, my son says to me, well, it tastes pretty bad, but it tastes much better with butter. I'm like, yes, like everything else in life. Um, it's bad in one sense, for some people at least, right? But, but it's good because it's so filled with rich, rich nutrients and, and vitamins. It's good, right? How about, let me give you just one, one more example of this. Um, exercising. Now, I'm not talking about like if you're like one of those casual exercises where like you go to the gym and it's more like a hangout session than it is a workout session. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like vigorous, strenuous exercise. Good or bad? Yeah, <laughs> It, it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good. I'm, I'm a, I, I'm, I pretend to do CrossFit, and I'm telling you, every time I do it, my body says to me, why are you doing this to me? And yet it's so good because the results, the results are good. Now listen, here, here's why I'm saying this. If you understand this tension that something can be both good and bad, you're going to understand what Paul is talking about when he addresses this idea of the law this morning. That's exactly what Paul wants to do for us. He wants us to understand that, listen, in one sense it's bad, and it doesn't make us feel good, but in a whole other sense, because of that, listen, because of that, it's actually good. I want to begin by reading in in chapter 7, I want to back up to verse 1, and I want to reread what we looked at last week. I want to read to verse 12, so you can follow along with me. Here's what Paul says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You feel the tension there? That's exactly the tension that so many of the believers who would have read this in the first century when Paul wrote this, again, many of them coming out of the Jewish faith, that they have this idea of the law. That's all they've known their entire lives. And here comes Paul and he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now there's this incredible tension, this confusion in their minds. I don't understand how the law works then, Paul. What's the point of the law? If the gospel removes us from the law, isn't then the law something that's bad and sinful? Now, I want you to get this. Um, The main point of chapter 7, this entire chapter, is about the law. And this particular section that we're in, we're going to look at verses 7 through verse 12. This section, the main point of this section is to describe the relationship between the law and sin. That's what Paul wants to do here. He wants us to understand how these two things work together. But again, I want to just maybe refresh your memory that requires that we understand what he means when he says the law, okay? We have to understand this idea of the law. Now, the law is often used in the Bible itself to describe a few different things, and the context helps us understand exactly what, what he means when he says the law. But let me give you an example. The law, actually, in the Bible can refer to the entirety of God's word. So in one sense, like this is the law, this is the law of God. In another sense, the law is often referred to, is referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, that's the law. Now listen, in, in a more explicit sense, and what Paul is getting at here is that the law refers to the Mosaic law. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he brought with him a tablet of stone, the Ten Commandments. And even that can be described, listen, as either two or ten, right? Jesus says, what's, what's the, the law? How do we sum up the law? What's the, the, the key idea of the law? It's first to love God, right? Secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, in doing this, you fulfill all the commands. But, but we have ten full commands, and it's the sense that, that, that's the sense that Paul is speaking of here. First commandment, basically, you shall know other gods before me. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And the law, as we saw last week, is, is given in, in the context of a covenant. It's what Paul is referred to in verse 7. He's talked about um, the new way of the Spirit versus the old way of the written code. When he talks about the law, he's wanting us to think about this, this covenant that God made with the nation of Israel in particular. And a covenant, as we said last week, is a binding relationship between God and man. And we saw last week, remember, that, that to operate under the law, under this place of the written code, it's a terrible place to live, right? Remember what we said last week? The law says what? What's the word? Do. And the gospel says 
Done. That's good. That's so key to remember. Remember, I, I love I, this, this quote has been running through my mind all week. John Bunyan, in describing the distinction between the law and the gospel, he says, The law comes along and says, Run, John, run. Right? The law demands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. And in contrast, he says, The gospel it brings greater things, right? It bids me fly, but it gives me wings. So the idea, again, in the old covenant, there was this idea that we have to obey the law, and a lot of Jews misinterpreted that to mean this. If I simply obey the law perfectly, then I can earn my, my eternal life. I can earn my status with God. I can merit my own salvation. Now, there was a sense in which that's what the law was teaching. If you can do this, right, do this and you'll live. But here's, here's the catch. If you disobey the law in one place, one area, you die. That's a tough standard. It's not just a tough standard. It's an impossible standard. And the new way of the Spirit, Paul is saying, is, is different. We're no longer under this covenant where we're trying to do, but we don't have the ability to do. He says that the Spirit comes along and under the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here's what happens. We die to the old way because of Jesus' death, and we're raised to this newness of life, this newness of life of the Spirit of God. And, and here's what that means. It's no longer the law of stone working on a heart of stone trying to say, just keep trying to do it, keep trying to do it. Instead, we have a new heart, spiritually speaking. We're brought to new life. We have a heart of flesh, but better than that, listen, better than that, we get the indwelling, the permanent indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, which means this. We have not only the desires to obey, we have the abilities to obey. The law kept us captive. It owned us. Again, we saw this last week. And, and he says here, right, it incited our flesh. And so the question, the natural question for those who are steeped in the law, remember, the only Bible they had in the first century was the Old Testament. All they have is law. And so they're trying to process, how does this work? And look at their question. Remember, remember this, by the way. Paul is having, as he, as he writes this letter, he's engaging with a hypothetical uh, uh, debate partner, this Jewish opponent, so to speak. Every time Paul says something about the, law, the gospel, the Jewish opponent speaks up and goes, okay, Paul, if you're telling me the gospel means this, then what about this area of the law? If the gospel of God's grace is free, salvation is free, well, then does, does that mean that we can just keep sinning, right? And, and it doesn't matter. We just sin. Who cares? We're, we're saved. We're saved. We're fine. Or, or should we just keep sinning so that grace can keep increasing? Look at the question here in, in verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Paul, you're telling me the law is bad. <laughs> Look at his answer. Same answer he always gives, isn't it? Definitive. By no means. By no means. I had a, a, a very astute and insightful young man around the age of 9 or 10, last week after the service, preached the message on the law and no longer being under the law, and he comes up to me and he asks this question, this is literally what he said. So are you telling me that the law is bad? I was like, wow, that's such a good question. And I opened up to this. I said, this is what we're going to talk about next week. Can you just hang on? Like, I gave him a little more than that. But that, that's, that's the place that we're in if we're thinking through this carefully. Is the law then bad? Worse, is the law sin? By no means. Now listen, this is such a good question because the answer to this question is, is so vital 
If you don't rightly understand the answer to this question, here's why this is important. You will never understand God, you will never understand grace, and you will never understand the gospel, okay? If you don't understand this question, is the law sin, you won't fully grasp those things. You see, what Paul does here is he tells us that the law reveals sin, it stirs up sin, it helps us understand the power of sin, it reveals to us our deadness because of sin, and because it does these things, it is very good. And by the way, if this never happens to you, if, this, if you're never stirred up to understand your sin, if you're never, never understanding how sin works and, and how that puts you at odds with God, you will never be pushed to Jesus Christ. You will never find hope. You will never experience salvation. And so the law is actually being used by God to drive you to the only place you can find hope. The only place anybody can find hope There's more tension in this passage, and and this is a bit of an extended introduction. I understand that, but bear with me. There's this tension of the law and the gospel in this passage, but there's more tension in this passage, and it's actually been one of the most historically difficult chapters in the Bible to interpret. And and there's been debate for literally since since the early church about how to interpret this passage, Romans chapter 7. And the key interpretive challenge, you say, what's what's the big debate about? I don't understand. Well, here's what it is, okay? The question that people try to understand is who is Paul talking about here? You'll notice that Paul is talking in the first person. And and if you read on until what we're going to look at next week, verse 13 to 25, he's talking about I, me, I, I. And even in our passage this week, what shall we say then is the law of sin? For I would not have known what sin is if the law had not said, you shall not go sin. He's talking about I, this personal pronoun. So the question then is this, who is this person? That's, That's the interpretive challenge. Some of you are like, I don't care about the interpretive questions here. Some of you are like, I care. And I'm telling you, it matters, okay? So, this is just, you need to care about this. This is important for us to get this passage right. We need to understand what the Bible is actually saying. So, some of you are like, I don't understand. This seems obvious. Isn't the I Paul? Well, historically, many people believe Paul is speaking of himself here. But that begs another question. So Paul is, in other words, giving us this autobiographical picture. So is this, is this Paul, listen, is this Paul pre-Christ? Or is this Paul as a Christian? And a lot of people, that's going to be really debated in next week's passage. We'll get to that next week. This passage seems very clear. There's past. This is looking back at his life, but it still is a legitimate question. So, so who else could this be? What do other people say about this? Historically, and again, the history of the church is filled with different interpretations on this. It's one of these unique passages. Who else could this be? Some people think it's Adam. If you read through this passage, it, you know, it, you're kind of like, who, who can say what this person says here? And a lot of you say, well, it sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? It kind of describes what happened to them in the garden. Who else could say, for example, that they were alive apart from the law? Who, who, who is alive apart from the law? Well, uh, that must be Adam and Eve, some believe. And you remember they're in the garden, and, and they are, in a sense, under law, but the commandment came, you can't eat from this tree, and what happened? Sin sprang to life, Satan deceived them, and they took and ate, they disobeyed God, they, they wanted what, they, what wasn't theirs to have, and they took it, and it brought death. You can kind of see the parallels there. It's possible, but it, but it actually seems like Paul is speaking 
hear more directly, notice this, of the Mosaic Covenant. You notice he, he actually quotes the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. So that's caused many people to believe, well, you know who Paul's talking about here? It's Israel. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an I, and it sounds personal, but it's representative. In other words, what Paul is demonstrating here is, is corporate solidarity. By the way, this is, this is a common way that they would have spoken. We do this all the time, by the way. Right? We say, like, look, we lost last night, right? Leaf fans? Some of you are like, what are you talking? We lost last night. Well, I, wasn't, I, I didn't lose. You, you know what I'm saying? So there's corporate solidarity potentially here. And by the way, this kind of does reflect Israel in a sense, doesn't it? Here, here comes Moses. He's already kind of given us this, reminded us about Moses. He comes down from the, the mountain. He's got the commandment. The commandment comes. What do the people do? They disobey the commandment. Like they're incited to sin. They commit uh, like sexual immorality. They, they, they dishonor God. They worship an idol. And then what happens? Well, it brings death. So you, again, you can see the parallels here. So, so you're like, Ian, okay, is Paul speaking of himself? Is Paul speaking of Adam? Is Paul speaking of Israel? Yes. I like what John Stott says. John Stott's famous commentator He's excellent on this passage. Here's what he says. He says, perhaps Paul is, ta- is telling both his own story and universalizing it. In brief, his experience, the sequence of comparative innocence, law, sin, and death, though uniquely his own, listen to this, this is so important, is also everybody's, whether Adam's in the garden, Israel's at the mountain, or for that matter, ours today. You see, this, this is the human story. That's what Paul is saying. It's what happened over and over in the history of redemption. When people receive the law, when they come face to face with the, the standards of God, this is what happens. This is what Paul said. This happens to every single person who, who comes face to face with God's law and chooses not to try to rebel and resist, but tries to keep the law, wants to keep the law. When people receive the law, it stirs them up. It pulls sinful desires to the forefront of their heart. It exposes their sinfulness, and it produces death. Not just, I'm not just talking like physical death in the moment. I'm talking about spiritual death, alienation from God, emptiness, brokenness. It happened to Paul, that's what he's saying. This is what happened to me. This is what the law did to me. And it happens, listen, to every Christian who's ever lived. Paul is speaking from the experience of those that have not yet been freed from the bondage of the law. They're still in this place where they're like, I can obey, I can be good enough, I can keep the commandments of God, and I'll be, I'll be good enough to get myself into God's presence. And Paul comes along and says, you don't understand the purpose of the law. You don't understand what God has designed the law to do in you. It's never been something that can produce salvation in you. It is only something that can provoke sin in you. And you see what he's describing here. We're about to get into the points, and I promise you, the points aren't going to be super long. First point's a little longer, but it's going to kind of be like a reverse triangle, okay? We're going to go shorter points right down to, a, to the point where we close the sermon. But here's what I want you to see. Listen, there's a type of war, a type of war, a type of battle that every person goes through, a, a war that goes on in your soul before you ever become a Christian,
before you ever get saved, before you ever get liberated, before you ever truly know God, there's a war that goes on in your body and your mind and your heart that you actually become very acutely aware of. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're like, I I am experiencing this war. I, I feel this battle in my own heart. And maybe if you're a Christian, you remember this war. You remember that process you had to go through. And this war, listen, pre-Christ, it's utterly unwinnable. It's unwinnable. Even when you think you're winning, you're losing. In fact, you're dead. And you keep dying over and over and over. But you see, this war is actually working for your liberty, your freedom. This is where it gets good. You're like, this is really bad. Like, I thought you said the law was good. That's what Paul wants you to see. This is bad. But when you understand what it's doing, it's good. It's actually working to free you. The war inside of us forces us to ask this question. What is the relationship between the law and sin? And what we see here in this passage is that the law, it actually frees us from three really destructive realities and pushes us towards salvation. So I want to I want to pull those out for you first. Notice this. The law frees us from the ignorance of sin. The law frees us from the ignorance of sin. And I know that was a long introduction. Just stay with me. I promise you it's going to move a little bit quicker. Look at verses 8 or 7 and 8 to me. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Then look at what he says. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known sin, he says. You see, what he's saying is this. The law actually reveals sin. It strips away our ignorance of what sin actually is. It shows us that we can't even see sin properly. We may think we know right and wrong, but the Bible comes along and actually tells us in explicit detail that what we're doing is not just right or wrong, it's not just good or bad, it's actually sin. Now, don't get the wrong idea. It's, it's, again, it's not that we don't, apart from the law, it's not that we don't know right or wrong, it's not what he's saying here. We know that Paul has already described this reality, that the Gentiles who don't have the law, those who did not have the written down law, that they actually know the truth. In Romans 1.32, what, what Paul says this, listen, they have a conscience, a God-given conscience. The reality is every human being understands to a degree right and wrong because God has built it, he's hardwired it into our DNA. We just instinctively know that there is not only a creator, we, we know in our conscience that there are things that are right and wrong. And again, our consciences aren't always accurate or perfect in this regard, but humanity is not off the hook because God hasn't come along and told them directly through the law, this is right, this is wrong. We know that there is right and wrong because of our conscience. The law of God, in a sense, written on our hearts. The law, though, here's, here's what the law does. The law comes along and clarifies, it, clarifies and crystallizes sin. It takes what is this vague sense in the conscience and it crystallizes it. It names it. And because it names it, in some sense, it increases it. And it it increases our awareness of it. Because we know now what we're doing is wrong. 
It's like being pulled over by the police, right? And the, and the officer's like, do you know how fast you're going and do you know what the speed limit is? And you're like, no. And then he tells you, you were going 180 in a school zone. All of a sudden, you knew you were going too fast, but all of a sudden, there was this sharp awareness of exactly what you've done wrong and how wrong it actually is. You see, that's exactly what the law does. It crystallizes sin. And it shows us in so doing, listen, that, that, that sin is exceedingly sinful and we do not have the ability to save ourselves from it. Our conscience is either excusing or accusing us. Even if you don't know the commandments, sin is still sin. But the terrible, listen, soul-destroying nature of sin cannot be fully known apart from the law. The law takes the definition of sin and it pushes it so much further and deeper than we ever thought it was. The small awareness of sin becomes enlightened when the law puts a name to it. And this is important because we like to excuse sin, right? The the world actually teaches us to excuse sin and to not call sin, sin. The world labels the awareness of sin, but it does so in a way that often excuses or justifies the sinfulness of sin. Let me give you some examples. We are told that we're, we're not sinning. We're told we make mistakes. We're told we have failures, we're told even by the world that's when we, when, we, when we do make mistakes or we do fail, we're saying, well, that's not really you. It's not really, we, we make that, that wasn't really me. We call sin an addiction or an illness. We say things like, it's not really that bad or don't be so hard on yourself. We all have flaws. And, and there's a sense in which, you know, like even the world, like, like we don't call it adultery. We just call it hooking up, friends with benefits. We don't call it lying, we just call it maybe exaggerating or fudging the truth, right? We have ways of minimizing the seriousness of sin and the sinfulness of sin. We don't like feeling condemned and guilty, and so we soften sin by giving it another name. But the law comes along and it calls sin, sin. It gives it the correct name. This is, this is what Jesus does in the, in the Beatitudes, right? And, and, and not the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. He comes along and, 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 and then he heightens sin in their hearts. You know, there's all these, these Jews who think they're fine. I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. He comes along and says, you haven't committed murder. Okay, let me ask you a question. Have you ever hated your brother in your heart? See what he's doing? He's taking the law and he's pressing it in to show them that they're actually guilty. They don't think they're guilty, but they are. I've never committed adultery. So you know what Jesus does? He says, okay, let me ask you a question. Have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? He says, because if you've done that, guess what? You're guilty of adultery before God. And the point he's making is this. Sin is more than just the external actions we commit. It's something that's deeply embedded in our hearts. And it's something we can't actually get away from. And by giving it a name, the law comes along. It gives it a name. And you know what it does? It cuts us. It stings us. It convicts us. And then it inevitably does this. It condemns us. The law tells you how bad you really are. And it's interesting here. Do you see what he does? This is so fascinating. 
He gives a personal example, but this is so theologically important. Notice what he says here. He says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law tells me what covetousness is. I didn't, I didn't really understand it, he says. Then all of a sudden the law comes along, tells me what covetousness is, and then look what happens. But sin, seizing an opportunity, notice what seizes the opportunity? Sin. Through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does he mean by that? He simply means this. It's not that bad. It's not a big deal. That's what I've been trying to say. Then all of a sudden the law comes and says, yeah, let me call it what it is. Let me call your sin, sin. And all of a sudden what you realize is this. I'm far worse than I thought I was. I'm not, I'm not as good as I thought I was. And the commandment here he chooses is, is, is covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. Tenth commandment, okay? Tenth commandment, the very last commandment. Why does he choose covetousness? Why the last one? Well, listen, to covet is this internal desire for bad things. Or it can be this inordinate desire for good things. In other words, covetousness is a matter predominantly of the heart, isn't it? It's one of those things that you can easily fake. It's not something that's externally uh, identifiable in many ways. It's something that's going on deep within your own heart. You want something that you should not want, or you want something that's not yours to have, and so this battle is going on in your own heart, in your desires. I like what the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says about this. I'll throw it up on the, on the screen here to help you out. The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, hundreds of years old, it helps us kind of work through some theological issues. Here's the question it asks, what does the tr- 10th commandment require of us? This is so helpful. Listen to what it says. Answer? That even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. Okay, go. Do do you see how this instantly destroys us? It instantly, instantly just attacks every one of our hearts and lays us on the ground in a puddle. We're like, that's not me. So here's the thing about the 10th commandment. It strikes to the very source of sin and the very depth of our hearts. By the way, this is why some people think this is Adam, right? By the way, it, many argue that the, the sin in the garden, you want to know what the, the sin in the garden was? Covetousness. You want to define it? What's the original sin? Covetousness. Why? Why, why is that such a big deal? Because it's wanting something that's not yours to want. And here's what, here's what Paul does. Paul actually connects this in a very intentional way in, in Ephesians and Colossians. Listen, here's, he connects covetousness to idolatry. Listen to what he says um, in Colossians chapter 3, I think it's first, Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. You see what he does there? Look at Colossians 3, 5. He says it again, just in case it wasn't clear. Boom. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, look at this, which is idolatry. You want to know what he's saying? The fundamental problem in the human heart is a worship problem. It's a worship disorder. And he said this already in chapter one, right? The failure of humanity. It's not just that you're sexually immoral. It's not just that you, you, you do wrong things. You are a, a disordered worshiper. You fail to worship God as God. That's what he's told us in Romans chapter one. 
And instead of worshiping God, here's what we do. We worship the creation rather than the creator. We worship things that the creator has made. We worship people. We worship possessions. We worship careers. We worship all kinds of other things. And what we're doing is we've displaced our worship. God's saying, no, 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 no. I have made you to worship me and me alone, but your heart keeps jumping to worship other things, and what you've done is you've de-godded God. It's no mistake, listen, that the first commandment, the tenth commandment, do you realize the tenth commandment is simply just a violation and a reiteration of the first commandment? You see, you see how good God, like how, how, how just brilliant, like what a genius God is, right? It shouldn't surprise us. He's like, listen, all commands are bookended by this reality. All of the commands that you break are showing you one simple reality. You have a worship problem. This is what he did with the rich young ruler. I quoted this last week. But, but let me press it in a little further. Good teacher, this is the rich young ruler, real story, comes up to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, so, so strategic, so good evangelistically. Listen, okay, you want to you inherit eternal life? Go and keep all the commands. Obey and you'll live. He's like, I have. And Jesus is like, oh yeah? Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the man walks away. Here's what he says. He walks away sad because he had many possessions. Do you see what Jesus was doing? He was putting his finger on the idol of the man's heart. He's saying, listen, you think you're good enough, but you're not. You have a worship problem. You love money more than you love me. You're not willing to follow me. You're not willing to come after me. You want what you want, and what you want is not me. But you see, we can't ever come to God and worship him if we don't realize, listen, what we're first worshiping instead. And that's what the commands do. They show us what we worship instead. They show us what we believe will satisfy, what we believe we need. They show us what we want most in the world. They show us what we worship. You say, how does this matter for us? Here's why this matters. Listen, Christian, this is really important. We need the first three quarters of the Bible, okay? This is what Paul is, the law still has a function. It has a function to continue to to point out sin in our lives. So when we're evangelizing, when we're sharing the gospel with people, what we want them to see most of all is not just that you've broken God's commands, but that in doing so, listen, you, you have a fundamental sin problem, and you have a worship problem, and God wants to address those things in your heart. But here's what we do. We show the law first. As Christians, we often want to run to grace. We want to talk all about the gospel and God can save you, which is so good, it's so true, and it's obviously necessary. But oftentimes, listen, we're not helping people first feel the weight of their sin. Nobody runs to to salvation who doesn't first realize what they need to be saved from. And so there's a sense in which we've got to hold the law up and say, listen, you don't realize how bad you actually are. And by the way, this is the same truth for me. All right, second thought for you guys today, and I promise you, like I said, we're going to move quicker here. The law frees us from the innocence of sin, okay? It frees us first from the ignorance of sin. It shows us what it is, the reality of sin in our own lives. It actually puts a name on sin, and then here's what it does. It shows us how guilty we are of sin. It's so fascinating. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Again, I don't think this is speaking as much to Adam as it is to Paul. I think here's the sense. What what he's saying is this. I I didn't believe I was that bad. 
right? I, I was once, I was just living my life. How many of us as, as non-Christians, before we were saved, we're just living our life. We're doing our thing. And, and, and we're doing whatever we want, whenever we want, and we actually don't feel that bad about it. We actually feel like we're alive. Right? We're following the passions of our flesh. Maybe we're sleeping around. We're making money. We're doing what we want, right? We just, we're, we're doing whatever we want. And all, I felt alive, he says, but then look what he says next. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Oh, all of a sudden, the commandment came and put a name to my sin, and I realized, I realized what was actually happening. I I wasn't alive like I thought I was, and now I try to do those things that I've I've used to love, that I've always done, and guess what happens? Now I start feeling guilty about them. I'm like, oh, this isn't right, because the law has told me that. And so all of a sudden, you've got this inner battle, this war, this conflict going on in your heart. You may choose to disregard it, but, but it's still there. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life. Remember how I keep saying, do this and live? Do this and live? That's what the law says, do this and live? This is one of the places I'm getting it from, right here. The, the commandment, the very commandment that promised life. If you can obey this perfectly, you can live. You, you, you're, you're fine. But here's the reality. It proved to be death to me. It showed me I couldn't do it. It showed me I was guilty. It showed me that I was condemned. You see, sin was stimulated through limitation. That's what he talks about in this example of covetousness, right? All of a sudden, right? it's, it's, it's like, if you, ever, you, ever, uh, you ever want a new car? Like you ever, you're like, you think about buying a new car, you've gone and you test drove new cars, and, and you got in your mind the car you want, right? What happens as you're driving along the road from that point on? All you see is that car. Am I right? Like, it's like, there's, it, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. You see, that, that's what the law does. It provokes, it, it provokes this understanding of our sins so that we now see it all over the place in our own hearts, in our own lives. We're like, man, my desires are so disordered. I'm, 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 I'm worshiping so many other things apart from God. That's the intent of the law. Sins is stimulated through the actual limitation. By the way, this is why the commandments are written in the negative. You ever wonder why? Like, why are they written in the negative? Because it incites the flesh in a unique way. We we get this, right? Forbidden fruit always, always seems to be the sweetest. The moment something is forbidden is the moment we want to do it. That's what sin does. It tells us no, and all of a sudden we want to do. Right? Tell me no, and I want to do it even more. This is what psychologists call contra-suggestibility. It's a real thing. I, I say, and if you've got kids, you just, you just know this inherently. You're like, you don't even have to explain this to me, and I already get this. Right? You say no, and all of a sudden you want to do. And by the way, we often want to do what we're told not to, not because we actually want the thing or want to do the thing, but simply because we're told we can't. If I had a dollar for the amount of things that I've done, not because I initially wanted to do it, but because I was told not to, I would be a rich man. You see, what does this say about our our hearts? It says again what Paul is driving at. We have de-godded God. It, It says this, okay? It says, I don't want God to rule my life. I am my own master. 
It says, I, I define my, don't tell me what to do, right? Don't tell me I can't do something. I'll do whatever I want. I'm in control. I'm in charge. I am my own captain and the master of my own domain. This is my life. And you see what we're saying? We're saying in that statement, we worship ourselves. We've kicked God off the throne. And it's spiritual suicide. And the law strips us of this innocence. It proves that we are idolaters. The law makes us aware of our guilt by provoking our flesh to do the very things we know are wrong and sinful. It incites. So instead, we hear the law. Instead of being able to go, okay, I hear the law. I understand it's good, and I will obey. Instead, what happens is this battle within us where we all of a sudden want to, like Adam and Eve in the garden, I hear what you're saying, but I want to do this now, and I will do it now, and it will kill me. It leaves me guilty, and it leaves me condemned. And finally, look at this, the law frees us from the illusion of sin. This is the purpose of the law. Look at verse 11 and 12, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. You see that? It deceived me. It, you, what, what, is he, what do you mean deceived me? It, it gave me, it kept me under the illusion that I could actually do this. It, it created this illusion that I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm really not that bad. I can accomplish this. I can fix myself. I can bootstrap it through this. The greatest deception of all is, is that you actually believe somehow you can obey the law perfectly and that you will actually, as a result, be okay with God. That's such an illusion. But so many people, listen, this is essentially what some people say. I've had many conversations with unbelievers. I know you have too. And oftentimes, I, I tell like, how do you think, well, what's your relationship with God look like? What, what, why do you think you're going to get to heaven? Why do you think you're going to be in the presence of God one day? And you know what the inevitable answer is? I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. And obviously, relatively speaking, they, they may be compared to lots of other people, but not if you define it the way sin does, not if you understand that all of your goodness, listen, apart from a relationship with God, is not actually good because you've never done it for God. You've never done it as an act of worship to God. You've always done it for some other motivation that is not for God and not for His glory, and that then inherently makes every act you've ever done, whether it's good or bad, listen, it makes it sinful. Do you see what the law does? It shows us the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. And when he says that the law killed me, he's not talking about physically, obviously. He's, he's speaking of this um, in this kind of metaphorical sense. He's saying that the, the law drove home his sinfulness. It drove home his guilt. It drove home his condemnation. It laid him bare. It confronts, listen, it confronts our self-righteousness. There, there is a, a story of an old preacher who after preaching about sin and the law ha, had an elderly woman come up to him and said, said to him, preacher, when you preach about sin, you make me feel this big. And he said, that is too big. He said, that much self-righteousness will land you in hell for all eternity. You see, the law is not meant to make us feel this big. It's meant to make us feel this big. It's meant to tell us what Paul's already told us. Listen, that there's none righteous, no, not one. Not one. That's what God is doing through the law. He's telling us that we are unrighteous. 
And he wants to confront us with this reality. Listen, that our sin is first and foremost not against other people. Our sin is against God. It's against our creator. And if we stay in this place of sin against God, hostile towards God, an enemy of God, it lands us, listen, eventually condemned by God and suffering the wrath of God. We have to pay for our sin. We have been an affront, our sin has, to a a holy, righteous God. We've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Spurgeon says this, he says, if I were to call you criminals, you would be disgusted with me. But if I call you sinners, you will not be at all angry because to offend man is a thing you would not like to do. But to offend God is to many persons a small matter, scarcely worth a moment's thought. Human nature has become so perverted that if men know that they have broken human laws, they're ashamed. But the breach of a command which only affects the Lord himself causes them very little concern. The law helps us understand that our sin is against God. That's why Paul can land on this thought, and here's where we're going to stick. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do you see what he's saying there? The problem is not the law. Who's the problem with church? Problems with me. And what I need, listen, what I need most of all is somebody who can come along and obey the law perfectly, who can suffer, listen, in my place, who can pay the penalty that I owe because of my sin. I need somebody to come and do that for me. And God says the only one who can do this perfectly is me. So let me come down to earth. Let me wrap myself in humanity and flesh. Let me live perfectly the life you can never live. Let me obey the law in every way. Let me die under the curse of the law. Let me pay the full penalty for the law. And let me win the war by rising victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death. And if you turn, listen, instead of trying to obey the law yourself, and you turn instead to the one who obeyed it for you, and you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, listen, the Bible says this, you will be saved. You'll be rescued from your sin, and you'll have eternal life, and find joy and hope and satisfaction that you can never find anywhere else, and you get it for all eternity.